On just the second episode of this podcast, I talked about the birds of the corvid family. Crows, ravens, blue jays, and magpies. So today, 66 episodes later, I want to focus on that last one, magpies, and get into a little more detail about them. Why now? Well, here at Dispatches HQ, we have black-billed magpies in abundance, and they're both beautiful and fascinating, not to mention a bit of an outlaw. I mean, at one time, there was a bounty on their heads, and I mean that literally. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. So today I'm going to be focusing on the black-billed magpie, since that's my local species. But there are 17 species of magpies, which in addition to Western North America, can be found in Eurasia, the islands of Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. The Australian magpie, although it looks very similar, is actually not a true magpie. It's not a member of the corvid family. Magpies are medium-sized birds, maybe a little bit smaller than its cousin the crow. They're largely black with a white belly and sides. Their long tail feathers and wings look black from a distance, but when you see them up close or in direct sunshine, they're actually an iridescent blue-green. And that long tail is not just for show. It gives the magpie the ability to make sharp turns in the air, helping it evade predators. Now, as far as the name magpie goes, there seems to be some disagreement as to how that came about. Magpies were once known only as pies, and according to one source, this was thought to derive from a word that meant pointed and may have referred to either their beak or their tail. But according to that same source, magpies were popular cage birds known for their song, which I find a little hard to believe since no corvid is really known for having a lovely song, and Eurasian magpies sound like this. That's about as soothing as a tornado siren. Other sources attribute a different meaning to the word pie. Now, pie doesn't just refer to a tasty dessert. When used as an adjective, it means something that has patches of two colors, which describes both the not-really-a-magpie Australian magpie as well as the rest of the true magpies. As far as the mag prefix is concerned, it seems, according to most sources that address it, to come from the nickname Maggie, short for Margaret, which in the 16th century was used as a generic woman's name, kind of like how we say Jane Doe, I guess, or Karen. The magpie's call was said to sound like the chattering of women, so it went from just being a pie to a magpie. Now here in the U.S. we have two species of magpie. The black-billed magpie, which as I said is my local species, and the yellow-billed magpie. Yellow-billed magpies are less common. They inhabit a relatively limited area of California's Central Valley and adjacent foothills and mountains. Yellow-billed magpies are distinguished by their, you guessed it, bright yellow bill and a yellow streak near their eye. I saw these birds on occasion when we lived in that area. They're really neat. Okay, guess what color the black-billed magpie's bill is? Okay, go on, guess. Yeah, it's black. Okay, not creative names, but also not confusing. Sometimes on the nose is best. Black-billed and yellow-billed magpies sound pretty much the same as each other, but different than their Eurasian cousins. 
The most commonly heard call is the alarm call, which sounds like this. Again, not the kind of bird song that's going to lull you to sleep or wake you gently in the morning. But they're also excellent mimics, and there's been at least one documented case of a captive magpie learning to imitate human speech. On the upside, listening for multiple birds making that alarm call often leads me to roosting owls since magpies, like other corvids, will harass owls and other predators until they leave. Black-billed magpies live in the western half of North America. They prefer open habitat with clumps of trees, which they need for nesting, and are also common in farmland and suburban areas. Magpies are opportunistic omnivores, which is just a fancy way of saying that they're not picky eaters and they'll take what they can get. They're usually seen foraging on the ground for insects, berries, and seeds, along with carrion. In fact, they're known to follow large predators like wolves in order to scavenge their kills. Near humans, they'll eat garbage or pet or livestock food that's left out. While they're not exactly birds of prey, sometimes, most often in the spring when they have hungry chicks to feed, they'll hunt rodents, reptiles, amphibians, small birds, and they're known to even eat the eggs and chicks of other birds, which some folks get upset about. You know, I find it kind of funny that people get upset when corvids like magpies or blue jays eat the eggs of songbirds, but those same people think nothing of having an omelet for breakfast. But it's different because we raise the chickens for eggs, I can hear them say, to which I say, tell it to the hen. Anyhow, black-billed magpies feed primarily on animal matter during the summer and switch to more vegetable matter in the winter. Historically, they were associated with bison herds, landing on the bison to pick off the ticks, a service they also provide for any large ungulate like moose, elk, or domestic cattle, which, as I'll get to later, also earned them a bad rap. Outside of the breeding season, black-billed magpies form loose flocks. On a side note, there are many names for a group of magpies, a mischief or a charm, which are my personal favorites, a gulp of magpies, not sure about that one or how it came about, and a parliament, which apparently reflects the idea that they gather to resolve social hierarchy disputes and form territories. Males tend to have more linear dominance hierarchies than females, and dominant birds can steal food from subordinate birds. Surprisingly, young males often seem to be dominant over adult males, but this may just be because the adults lack the motivation to make a fuss about it, since they can more easily find food. In other words, the adults just don't care. Fights are rare and involve jumping and kicking. Dominance is more generally established through displays, such as stretching the body laterally with the bill raised and flashing the nictitating membrane, that third translucent eyelid, but only on the side of the opponent. In the winter, black-billed magpies roost communally, flying together, sometimes quite a ways, to reach a good roosting site like dense trees or shrubs that can provide both protection from predators and in colder areas especially shelter from the wind. During the night, they may regurgitate a pellet of indigestible material just like owls do. Now, magpies are one of the few birds that build a domed nest, usually high up near the tops of trees. Nests are loose but large accumulations of branches, twigs, grass, mud, even fur and other materials, 
And in jolly old England, a magpie's nest was a saying that meant something that was messy or of little value, kind of like we'd say rat's nest. Branches and twigs make up the base and framework, while mud is used as an anchor and in the nest cup. The nest cup is lined with soft material like grass and fur. The dome is a loose assemblage of twigs and branches, and nests usually have a single side entrance. Now, magpie nests are fairly durable, and old nests are sometimes repaired and reused for several breeding seasons. Both sexes help build the nest, although they don't always agree on a location right away and may start building alone in different places before one of them decides to give up and help their mate instead. Building a nest from scratch can take 45 to 50 days. Magpies will aggressively defend their nest from perceived threats. Now, magpies often, but don't always, mate for life. Breeding takes place in the spring, and magpies usually only lay one clutch of eggs per year. But if that first nesting fails for some reason, it's not unusual for them to try again. Average clutch size is six to seven eggs, although there have been clutches recorded as large as 13. Eggs are greenish-gray marked with brown spots and about an inch and a third long. Incubation takes two to three weeks and is done solely by the mother. Eggs usually hatch asynchronously across several days. Both parents help feed the chicks, which can fly three to four weeks after hatching. Sadly, though, out of an average of six to seven eggs per clutch, only about three to four chicks per nest survive that long. The others often succumb to starvation, which is not unusual with birds that hatch asynchronously. Those that do make it to fledging will feed with the adults for about two more months before leaving to form a mischief with other juveniles. Lifespan in the wild is four to six years. People have a complicated relationship with magpies, mostly because of myths, superstition, and misunderstanding. In Chinese folklore, they're considered to be a symbol of good luck. Native American myths emphasize the magpie's intelligence. It's commonly thought that magpies will steal shiny objects, an idea reinforced by an 1800s opera titled The Thieving Magpie, in which a servant is put to death for stealing silverware from her employers, and later they discover that their pet magpie was actually the thief. But a study in 2014 showed that magpies actually express what's called neophobia, the fear of anything new. When presented with shiny, unfamiliar objects, they were less likely to approach or interact with those items. In the late 1700s, a children's nursery rhyme involved counting magpies to determine good or bad fortune. Now here's a good word for you. Orthonomancy, which is the practice of reading omens from the actions of birds. One version of this rhyme starts out, one for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a funeral, and four for birth. A common modern version reads, one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret never to be told. But some versions also start throwing the devil in there too. Eight for heaven, nine for hell, and ten for the devil's own self. In other versions, the devil comes in at seven or thirteen. The point is that any association with hell and the devil, especially in 16th century England, tended to make one regarded with a high degree of suspicion. Now, I mentioned earlier that magpies were outlaws, and in some places they can make themselves pests, particularly in orchards. 
When Lewis and Clark first encountered black-billed magpies in South Dakota in 1804, they noted that these were bold birds, taking food from their hands and even stealing food from inside their tents. The magpies' occasional egg-eating made people think they were detrimental to game birds, even though magpies and game birds coexisted just fine before European settlers came along. For the record, studies have shown that eggs make up only a small percentage of the magpie's diet during the nesting season, and songbird populations don't fare any worse in the presence of magpies. Their tick leaning on cattle had people thinking they were detrimental to livestock, too, that they were pecking at sores on the cattle instead of removing the parasites that caused the sore. So, in the early to mid-1900s, these misconceptions led to magpies becoming some of America's most wanted. Bounties of one cent per egg and two cents per head were offered. I told you they literally had a price on their head. In 1933, hunters in the Okanagan Valley in Washington State, an area I happened to mention in the last episode, shot over a thousand magpies, so a little over 20 bucks worth in 1933, which equates to about $475 today. In Idaho, it's estimated that the magpie death toll reached over 150,000 during the bounty years. And these numbers don't include all the magpies that were killed from scavenging poisoned carcasses left out to kill large predators, like wolves and coyotes. But it turns out that magpies are one of the most intelligent birds, and indeed animals, on the planet. They've shown the ability to make and use tools, imitate human speech, play games, and work in teams. One source I read indicated, without reference though, so I couldn't find verification for this claim, that magpies have been documented portioning food to their young using self-made utensils to cut the meal into proper sizes. But magpies have passed what's called the mirror test. The mirror test shows an animal's ability to recognize itself in a reflection. Basically what they do is put a harmless red mark on the bird's neck and put it in a cage with a mirror. The magpie sees the mark in the mirror, but then scratches at the mark on itself, showing that it understood that it was seeing its own reflection. The only other animals that have passed the mirror test are humans, elephants, dolphins, and a few species of primates. Magpies and other members of the corvid family also hold funerals for their dead. When a magpie discovers a dead magpie, it often begins calling loudly to attract others. This gathering of raucously calling magpies, up to 40 birds have been observed, may last for 10 to 15 minutes before the birds disperse and fly off silently. Sometimes they'll preen the dead bird or lay pieces of grass near it. Now, I always caution against assigning human motivations and emotions to other animals. We don't know exactly why they're engaging in this behavior, but there are a few possible explanations. Maybe they really are grieving, saying goodbye to a member of their flock who they recognize has passed away, a funeral in a very real sense. But it's been suggested that this is not grieving, but a way of assessing a potential danger to the flock. But still, this would require an understanding that the dead bird is, well, dead, and that something caused it to die and could cause others to die too. Interesting to note also that they don't react this way to dead birds of other species, just one of their own. It seems like species wouldn't matter if they were assessing danger. 
It's also been suggested that this gathering is a way of assessing whether they can move up on the social hierarchy. If the dead bird was a more dominant one, then there's an opportunity. But again, this requires that they can recognize each other and understand that this flock member is now an ex-magpie. So really, no matter how you slice it, whether they're grieving, assessing danger, or selfishly looking to move up in status, it shows you just how smart magpies are. And with that, we'll end this episode. Thank you once again for listening to my ramblings. Be sure to leave me a like and subscribe to the podcast. Feel free to leave me a comment if you have one. It is, as always, totally and completely and utterly free. If you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. Tell a friend to give it a listen. Please check out our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. Subscriptions start at a mere $5 a month, and after three months, you get some cool merchandise. You can find all that information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and how to get in touch with me if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. Go browse our merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. There's a lot there. I'm sure you'll find something you like. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.